Please pray with me. God of inspiration, break into the wilderness of our lives. The uncertainty, the confusion, and the distractions from your word break in with a moment of clarity, a moment of grace and understanding that encourages us and molds us through your holy word and by your spirit into the image of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Betrayal, scandal, intrigue, and power plays. No, this isn't the introduction to House of Cards or to Survivor Season 40. This, in fact, is our scripture for the morning. In the midst of all this drama, I believe the scripture has something for us in our everyday lives. So listen now to a word from the Lord found in Genesis chapter 39, verses 6 through 23. Now Joseph was handsome and good-looking, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, with me here, My master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my hand. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself because you were his wife. How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And although she spoke to Joseph day after day, He would not consent to lie beside her or to be with her. One day, however, when he went into the house to do his work, and while no one else was in the house, she caught hold of his garment saying, Lie with me! But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, She called out to the members of her household and said to them, See, my husband has brought among us a Hebrew to insult us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out in a loud voice. And when he heard me raise my voice and cry out, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Then she kept his garment by her side until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, See, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to insult me. But as soon as I raised my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. When his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, saying, This is the way your servant treated me, He became enraged, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. He remained there in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. He gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer, 
The chief jailer committed to Joseph's care all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The chief jailer paid no heed to anything that was in Joseph's care, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our passage this morning begins by enlightening us on Joseph's appearance, that he wasn't just a six on a scale of one to ten, but rather he was handsome and good-looking. Perhaps the writers are telling us this so that we can understand the motivation for what is about to unfold. That seems reasonable. However, if we look at the words that are used They're actually the same words that are used to describe Joseph's mother in chapter 29, verse 17, when it says, Rachel was graceful and beautiful. Joseph is like his mother in appearance, but in many other ways, he is unlike his mother. His mother, Rachel, who stole her father's idols, his mother who hid them, and lied about it. Joseph, unlike his mother, is a picture of integrity. Thrown at the handsome, privileged young man is temptation. The master's wife commands him to lie with her, to help her commit adultery. It's a power play straight from that of a soap opera. This is not a request of love. This is a desire to oust the one who has taken authority like that of Potiphar. But Joseph does not give in. He recognizes his privilege and does not want to abuse it. A picture of integrity. Joseph remains true to God by remaining true to his master. But the story doesn't end there. One day, when working in the house seemingly alone, Potiphar's wife comes again to Joseph, this time getting so uncomfortably close that he flees the scene, leaving behind a robe. And once again, Joseph's clothing betrays him. Just as his coat of many colors was taken by his brothers to mislead his father, telling him that he was dead. Joseph's robe is now being used to persuade his colleagues and ultimately his master that he has tried to take advantage of the wife. When spinning her lies to frame Joseph, Potiphar's wife throws around a term that he is Hebrew. This slave that has come into her house is intending to insult the master. What else should he expect from a Hebrew? During this time period, in Egyptian and Mesopotamian culture, we find in several of the writings a term that sounds similar to Hebrew— Hapiru or Habiru. It's a term that's used to describe slaves, mercenaries, and those who live on the fringes who are seen as a threat to the majority. 
It's not clear as to whether Potiphar's wife is trying to make a racist comment or to prey on the classist fears of those around her. But either way, she knows that this distinction, the use of the term Hebrew in conjunction with this robe, is a powerful indictment. Joseph's encounter with Potiphar's wife is not an unfamiliar one. Egyptians tell a story called the tale of two brothers. Anpu and Batah are brothers. Anpu is married and his wife accuses Batah of trying to have relations with her. However, in their story, Batah mounts a defense and is able to clear his name. Herein lies the issue with Joseph's story. Joseph does not speak up. Joseph is given no chance to make a defense. However, in some mysterious way, grace is extended. Traditionally, this crime is a capital offense. But instead of being put to death, Joseph is thrown in the king's prison. Standing in a place of integrity, saying no to what is wrong, Joseph is punished. Risen from the pit of slavery to become number two in the house of Potiphar, only to fall back down into the bowels of prison. And yet scripture tells us he has not been forgotten. Even in the darkest of places, God is present. Separated from family, far from the land of his home, God is still with Joseph. Verse 21 tells us, The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. And again in verse 23, The Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made prosper. I want to make sure we're clear. Prison was not the will of God for Joseph. Prison was the result of lies and manipulation which is not part of God's work. God was still present, working in the midst of all that was bad to bring about good. God was at work in those whom we would least expect it. An Egyptian prison warden, for instance. This, my friends, is good news for me, and I hope it is for you, because it reminds me that even though appearances may seem otherwise, even though we feel that the deck may be stacked against us, even when we can see no way forward, God is present in our darkest of moments. Even though I may not be able to name how, The steadfast love of God is for me. 
And yet, while prison tales like Joseph's remind us of God's ever-present nature and unfailing love, that's not the only thing they teach us. In the story of Joseph and that of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and of Martin Luther King Jr., I find encouragement to endure suffering unjust as it may be in a manner that brings glory to God. Indeed, we endure suffering precisely by recognizing that God is with us. As you may know, Bonhoeffer was imprisoned by the Nazis for his conspiring to help assassinate Adolf Hitler. In his prison writings, Bonhoeffer exemplifies how his experience of God's presence helped him endure suffering. We hear this truth echoed in a poem he penned just a few months before his death in a concentration camp. Hear the words of his poem, Power of Good. Should it be ours to drain the cup of grieving, even to the dregs of pain at thy command? We will not falter, thankfully receiving all that is given by thy loving hand, while all the powers of good aid and attend us. Boldly will face the future, come what may. At even and at morn, God will befriend us, and oh, most surely, on each newborn day. Such confidence of God's work during such a trying time in the midst of such darkness. Now, some of you might be asking how Bonhoeffer could be so confident when he was imprisoned for literally trying to assassinate the leader of his country. Others have benefited from the hindsight and may say that Bonhoeffer was fully justified. After all, if killing Hitler meant stopping the Holocaust, surely the good would then outweigh the bad. However you might choose to look at it today, I think it's safe to say that Bonhoeffer represents an extreme position. Certainly, many German Christians supported the Nazi party, and those who didn't, were very unwilling to engage in such extreme measures. But this raises a question for me. Shouldn't we be willing to engage in extremes to combat injustice? Now we have to be careful not to exchange one sin for another, but also not to allow our fate to validate injustice on our part. If we take seriously our charge to work to bring about the kingdom here on earth, there's a good chance that our work for justice will appear as extremism to this world. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. addressed this in his own prison letter letter from a Birmingham jail. He has this to say. But though I was initially disappointed as being categorized as an extremist, 
As I continue to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bear in my body the marks of my Lord Jesus Christ. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand. I can do no otherwise. So help me God. And John Bunyan I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. And Abraham Lincoln, this nation cannot survive half slave and half free. And Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremist, but what kind of extremist we will be. Will we be extremists for hate? Or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? I'm sure it comes as no shock to you that I have never been imprisoned for any reason. In particular, I have never been imprisoned for work on behalf of a divine cause. But it seems to me that such an experience would be trying beyond comprehension. In the midst of some of their darkest trials, Dr. King, Bonhoeffer, and Joseph all remained unswerving in their commitment to honor God because they were confident that God was with them. As we leave this place today, I can't help but wonder... Am I Joseph, or am I Potiphar's wife, conniving to take down those who I think have risen too high? Am I Bonhoeffer, or am I a Christian who has sided with an unjust regime? Am I Dr. King, or am I a well-meaning minister fighting more vehemently for order than for justice? We can be sure of who we are when we remember that God is with us and that God's love will not fail us. What Joseph Bonhoeffer and Dr. King show us is that we don't have to know exactly how it is that God is at work to be sure that God's steadfast love is for us. You don't have to have the answers right now or next week or next year. You don't have to have a nice and tidy life for God to be with you. God comes to us just as we are, where we are, in the midst of our darkness and our joy. This day, may we know that God is with us that God loves us, and be empowered to live our lives in such a way that even the darkest moments 
Proclaim the steadfast love of God. Alleluia. Amen.